am back with another episode. Firstly, I'd like to say thank you so much if you're back and you're listening again. And if you're a new listener, welcome, and I really hope you enjoy. I did want to point out that we gained a whole bunch of new listeners, it looks like, from the last episode. So thank you again to everyone who's tuned in and who came from the Haunted Walk. I really appreciate that. This episode today is about two historical locations that were both fur trade posts and involved, of course, with the Hudson's Bay Company, as most were. We'll be talking about a tiny little place that packs a big punch, and this is Dunvegan in Alberta. The other location is in Winnipeg, Manitoba on the Red River, and is a really cool place with so many stories attached to it. And I spoke with an employee who gave me a mind-blowing personal experience. And when I read it, it left me speechless. So I can't wait for you all to hear that one. So off the top, I want to give a big thank you to Historic Dunvegan and their program coordinator, Stephanie. I would also like to thank Lower Fort Gary National Historical Site and Haley and Heather for helping me out and for answering my questions. So these are a couple of gems in our country. I really hope that if you're out there listening, you'll put this on your list of places to visit. Of course, don't forget to message me if you do go. Send me pictures and tell me your experiences. I'm always curious to see if people check these places out. As always, remember to check out the blog for this episode so you can see photos of the locations and so you can find out how and where you can visit. So as I said last time, and at the time of recording right now, Canada is slowly starting to open up a little bit. I don't believe that these two places are open right now, but definitely keep checking our website and their websites to see when it is safe for you to visit. I hope everyone out there is safe and healthy right now. So let's get into this episode. First, I want to talk about this awesome little location. This is Historic Dunvegan. Now, as I said, it's small. And truly, I think if you blinked while you were driving, you would miss it. But as I also said, it does pack a big punch. So both historically and in legend. So let's get into the history of Dunvegan. Dunvegan can be found on the north shore of the Peace River, Sir Alexander Mackenzie passed through this area on his way to the Pacific Ocean in 1793. I spoke with Stephanie, who has been program coordinator for over 12 years. She described Dunvegan as the gathering place for thousands of years to the Dunizzi or Beaver people. They were nomadic and traveled up and down the Peace River Valley. There is evidence dating back over 10,000 years ago. She said that even at Dunvegan specifically, there was a hearth found dated over 2,000 years ago. So that's incredible. In 1805, the Northwest Company set up a fur trading spot called Fort Dunvegan. So the fur trade was massive. It was a huge commercial enterprise. There was a huge demand for felt hats, and the demand for beaver pelts was high. Of course, at this time, the fastest way to travel and trade was by waterway. And Dunvegan was a perfect location, just on the side of Peace River. 
As time went on, the amount of products that were offered and traded increased and included a number of different things, like textiles, food, guns, tools, etc. In 1821, the Northwest Company merged with the Hudson's Bay Company. Later in the 1800s, both Anglican and Catholic missionaries came to Dunvegan and set up shop. There are two locations related to this which are still standing at Dunvegan. One is the church that was built in 1886, and the other is a rectory built in 1889. This was, of course, a common thing that happened at many places in this time, where missionaries would come in and set up in these small forts to provide religion to people in the area. Then in the early 1900s, and like many other fur trading forts, they were starting to close down. The fort in Dunvegan was just not sustainable anymore. There was speculation of the railway coming into Dunvegan, and I did see this in many newspaper articles at the time. So I'll have some of those up on the blog, but like many places who were counting on the railway to come and make their town a hub, it didn't end up coming through Dunvegan. So we saw this many times, and with a lot of ghost towns that I've already talked about in BC, the railway either didn't come or it moved to a different location. And being that that was really the lifeblood for many of these places at the time, they just closed down. People just left. So now that we know the history of this place, I want to tell you about the other buildings that are still here. I mentioned the church and the rectory, and just for those of you who don't know, the rectory is a place where the priest would have lived. The other building is an early 1900s trade store that was owned by Revion Frere, I hope I said that right, I'm not French, uh, which was a trading company that specialized in luxury products from Paris. And the other building is set quite a ways from the visitor's center and the other three buildings, and that is the Hudson's Bay Company Factors House. Built in 1874, and this is really cool, it is the second oldest fur trade building left on its original site in Alberta. So that's amazing. That's reason enough to visit on its own. Now the factor was the head of the fur trade operation at the fort. So they would be the ones who were dealing with all of the finances and commissions. So correct me if I'm wrong, but that is what I read. So these are the buildings that remain here that you can visit when you come to Dunvegan. So there are really two main stories at this location. The first story is the priest in the rectory. Stephanie told me that in the early 90s, after the church and rectory had recently been restored, a family visited. The woman had a vision of a priest writing at a table. And in this vision, he relayed to her that the furnishings were set up incorrectly. She communicated this to the staff and they corrected the apparent issue. And the spirit then moved on. She said that people will come who have heard of the priest and say, there's a ghost in the rectory. And she kind of laughed and she said, mm, not anymore. There are some other little things connected to this story that I read in other articles. One claims that people have reported seeing lights on the second floor of the rectory and the silhouette of who they believe is the priest in one of the second floor windows. Others have had feelings of being watched in different places around the park. I asked Stephanie if there were any places on the site that made her uncomfortable. She said that the only place that can feel off sometimes is the factor's house. Now I'll have a little map up 
so you can see exactly where it is. It's the only building that is off the main area. You have to cross under the bridge to get there, and she said, maybe because it's set off from the rest of the buildings and it's quieter out there, but the home will sometimes give her the spooks. She doesn't really like going out there on her own. Though, she said interestingly, once they had a local radio station come out for a Halloween event, and they did different things around the site, and she said strangely that night when they were in the factor's house in the dark, she actually felt really peaceful. So that's kind of interesting. I wonder why that was. The other story is the Grey Lady of Dunvegan. This one seems like it's the most well-known story attached to Dunvegan. And as Stephanie related, it's really a local legend for many people that live in the area. So this is the story as Stephanie knows it. There have been several people who have been driving over the bridge or down into the valley on a foggy night. They report seeing a woman either on the bridge or in the hills. She said that a lot of people think she could have been a nun due to her clothing. Many describe a nun-like habit. Now, she also said she heard that this woman could have been someone who had gone out in search of medicine for a sick family member, never to return. Neither have been proven, and Stephanie also pointed out there were actually never any nuns at Dunvegan. There are two books that go into more detail about these stories if you'd like to hear more. One is called More Ghost Stories of Alberta by Barbara Smith. I own that one, and it's awesome. And Footsteps and Whispers by Elisa Willies, and I'll have information up for both of those if you're interested in reading further. So in my research, I did come across a more detailed account of the sightings of the Grey Lady. Apparently, shortly after the bridge opened in the 60s, the first sighting occurred. A man or two men were driving on the bridge, and around the middle of the bridge, they saw a woman in a cloak. So this could be the nun habit that people might be mistaking. They apparently noticed that she had bare feet. The men slowed to see if she needed help, and she ignored them. This is something I've seen many times about the woman. She does not answer or acknowledge anyone who might stop to ask her if she is okay. There are also stories about people who will go back to see where she was, and there will be no footprints in the snow if it's been snowing, and no sign of her. She has also been seen up in the hills, and many describe her as looking like she's picking berries even in the snow, which usually gives away her spectral identity. There were a couple of other versions where people say that they see her up in the hills with a flickering lantern. So if you're looking for a cool place to check out, and especially if it's a little bit foggy, be sure to look out for the Grey Lady of Dunvegan. I will of course have all of the information up on the blog. It is about 26 kilometers south of Fairview and about 100 kilometers north of Grand Prairie on Highway 2. So check out their website at www.historicdunvegan.ca. And Dunvegan is spelled D-U-N-V-E-G-A-N. They are also on Facebook under Historic Dunvegan. And Stephanie said that their season is usually from May 25th to Labor Day. So again, because of everything going on right now, I don't believe they will be open May 25th, but hopefully they'll be able to open for even a small part of the summer. 
I was actually planning on going this summer. So I'm hoping that maybe I'll be able to make it. If not, next year. The next place that I'm going to talk about today is the Lower Fort Garry National Historical Site in Winnipeg, Manitoba. This place was built in 1830 by the Hudson's Bay Company off the Red River and about 32 kilometers north of what was the original Fort Garry. This original fort was destroyed in 1826 by a flood, and this inspired a search for a safer spot downriver. The location that was chosen for Lower Fort Garry was chosen for that exact reason. It was on higher ground and therefore safer. Now, the intentions for this site was to be a hub for trade and communication. However, the population of consumers and traders didn't exactly like the extra trek to the new fort. Therefore, a new trade post was built, and it was called Upper Fort Garry, and ended up being closer to the original location. So while they did do some fur trading at Lower Fort Garry, it ended up actually being more of a supply depot to the surrounding settlements. The first buildings that were built here were the Fur Loft, which is where the company store and a small trader's office was. The Big House, which was home for the governor of the Hudson's Bay Company. The walls around the fort were also built in the late 1840s, and they weren't so much meant for military purposes, yet more about making the fort look important. (laughs) One detail you have to know, raised my antenna. It was mostly constructed of limestone, so ding, 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 that is one of the favorite materials for the stone tape theory, which is something we've talked about many times, so in an effort not to be a broken record, I will put a little link, I'll put a little write-up on the blog for people who haven't heard of this before, but I have mentioned it many times before in past episodes. Anyone who's been a listener for a long time knows that I have to share that tidbit because that sets off alarm bells for me. So we do know that there is conductive material on site. In 1870, the Red River Rebellion broke out when a territory of land was transferred from the Hudson's Bay Company to this new country of Canada. The fear of this big change was the loss of culture and land rights So the Métis people embarked on a rebellion, and from this emerged Louis Riel. He was seen as a hero of many locals, but an outlaw to the Canadian government. But out of this rebellion came the creation of Manitoba. Upper and lower Fort Garry were used by military during the rebellion, and in 1871, August 3rd, Treaty 1 was signed at Lower Fort Garry, between the Crown and the First Nations. Fort Garry was also used as the first training base of the Northwest Mounted Police. This site was given to the federal government in 1951 and designated a National Historical Site in 1958. There's a really great selection of historical buildings here and many stories, so let's get into those right now. I emailed with Heather, who was the Acting Visitor Experience Manager at the site for 25 years. She sent me some amazing stories from the site. The first story is from the Dean's Quarters. This is a story from the time of the Motor Country Club that inhabited the site from 1913 to 1962. During this time, the Big House, as it's called, served as the main clubhouse, and in the basement area, there was a bar and lounge. 
There was a man who would frequent the bar, and one day he showed up in great distress. He told the bartender that his wife was leaving him, and he began to drink his sorrows that night. He appeared to fall asleep at the bar, and at closing time, the bartender attempted to wake him, but he couldn't. He finally grabbed him, pulling him upright and spinning him around, and it was then that he realized the man had drunk himself to death. Heather continued, saying that there were many team members who have reported being very uncomfortable being alone in the Dean's quarters in the big house. Team members have experienced things from goosebumps to chills for no reason, and some people flat out will not enter the room on their own. According to a story that has been passed down through generations of team members, a visitor entered the Dean's quarters and was overcome by such strong emotion they had to leave at once. Another building on this site is called the Ross Cottage. Just before the cottage was opened to the public for the first time, which would have been the late 1970s, a group of maintenance and restoration workers were working on the building. One night after a long day's setup, the crew left the home near completion. However, the next morning, when two of the workers returned, the home was not how they left it. They opened the front door and could feel their skin tingle and crawl. They looked around the room and the house was in shambles. It looked like a hurricane had come through. Tables were turned over, curtains ripped from their hooks. They surveyed the damage and the two workers noticed that a rocking chair in the corner was moving slightly. But that wasn't all. Sitting in it was a young girl of about ten, dressed in old-fashioned clothing. She was rocking back and forth and staring at the men and murmuring softly, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry about the mess. So sorry. So sorry about the mess. The two men turned and ran from the home, locking the door behind them. They returned with more people, but the girl was gone. However, the state of the home was still upended. So that honestly is one of my favorite stories. That one gave me chills, just the mental image of seeing a little girl sitting there in old-timey clothing. I mean, come on, little ghost children are the scariest. So those workers were brave for even coming back into the house. I would have been gone. So Heather didn't stop here with the Ross Cottage. She says that when the site was first turned over to Parks Canada, an archaeological team was working in the home to prep it for restoration they began to notice odd things happening around the home. Items would move or be misplaced. Harmless things, really. But then one night, one of the archaeologists decided to stay overnight in the building. And apparently he had an interesting night that he would soon not forget. With items moving about the room, soft moaning sounds, and the sound of a young child coughing outside the back door throughout his stay. The next day, the team went to a local fair and happened to encounter a medium. So they discussed with her what happened the night before, and they actually invited her to come back to the building where they held an unofficial seance. Heather says that supposedly it's recounted that the medium made contact with a young girl who claimed to be living in the house. Now, the team did some digging because as far as they knew, there had never been a child that lived in the Ross Cottage, not one that young. However, they found quite the opposite. For a short period of time, the cottage housed children with tuberculosis. 
And during that time, a young girl did pass away within the house. So it's believed that her spirit remains there to this day. That is an awesome location. Another location that Heather wrote about is the warehouse. So back in 1871 to 1877, a turnkey by the name of Thomas Slack was hired to work in the penitentiary that was located in the warehouse. Slack was a European man who came to Rupert's land without his family. He was intending to make enough money to eventually send for them to come over. After getting settled, he ended up taking a country wife, which was not out of the ordinary for others that were in similar situations at this time. After living happily for a year, he received a letter from his wife in 1873 that had been delayed. It was telling him that she and the children were on their way. They were coming to Rupert's Land to be with him. She had inherited a large sum of money. Due to the timing of the letter, his wife and children were set to arrive in just a few days. According to the journal of one of his co-workers, Slack entered a temporary fit of insanity, not knowing what to do about his country wife. It's then rumored that he went to the third floor of the warehouse and he killed himself. Heather says that to this day, it's uncertain how he carried out the suicide. Some say that he hung himself, and others claim that it was a self-inflicted gunshot. Team members have reported feelings of being watched when they are in the warehouse alone. And one team member said that during her tours, she has had visitors comment on a man in a costume behind her, only to turn around and see no one there. There have also been reports from two separate team members who say that at night they've seen a man watching them from a window on the third floor, only to find it empty upon investigation. The next place I want to talk about, and yes, there's even more, literally every single place I think here has stories. The next place I want to talk about is the Furloft. This is another story that came from Heather, and this is when the site first opened in the 1970s. There were security guards who would check the buildings and around the site at night. They would prove they were in each building with a punch card system. So one night, a security guard punched into the Furloft building to do his check. He went through the first and second floors with nothing out of the ordinary. But up on the third floor, he saw something strange. On the west side of the floor, on top of a pile of furs, there was a man sleeping. Now that's weird already, but he also was wearing period clothing. So the guard woke the man and asked if he was lost and if he was okay. He then told him that he would have to leave the building. The man got up and stared at the wall before he turned and he walked through the freaking wall. Now this guard is my kind of person because the next morning when other employees and interpreters arrived for the day, they found this guard sitting on the hood of his car where it appeared he spent the night. He told them what happened and he promptly quit his job. (laughs) And furthermore, think of it this way. This was the 1970s. So you don't have a phone, nothing like that. So now you're sitting there in the silence and the dark, even though you're out of the park now, but you're alone for the entire night. So, I mean, kudos to him for being brave enough to even stay there to say, hey, I'm not working here anymore. So that's an amazing story. I love that one. Now, the next place I was told about was the mess hall. 
Heather said that one of the facility team members was alone with a colleague, cleaning the big house during the winter. They punched in their alarm codes and locked the door behind them. They were in the basement breezeway area, and they heard a man's voice moaning, like someone trying to talk in their sleep. They then heard a chair being dragged across the floor in the mess hall above them. They were so scared that they left the house immediately. Now, that was the last story of the park buildings that I was told of, but Heather was not done. She had another story for me, and this one happened directly to her. Heather's story begins on an evening in 1994, when she was on her way home from university. As she approached Lower Fort Gary from the south side, she saw a man in the middle of the road. She said he came out of nowhere and scared her. She slammed on her brakes and felt like she hit something. She pulled over and got out to look. She thought she'd maybe hit something, hit him, but there was nothing. She looked around and was obviously really upset and scared. She looked everywhere, but she saw nothing. She got back into her car and began driving again, but when she looked in the rearview mirror, she saw that she was not alone in her car. There was a man staring back at her. He was in the back seat of her car and said nothing, did nothing just looked at her. She said that he had long, scraggly dark hair, dark eyes, was unshaven, and had a dark felt hat on. Heather asked him what he wanted, and he still said nothing. She realized then that for sure, this was a ghost. She told him to go away, but he didn't. She resumed driving and said that once she was on the north end of the site, he was gone. Now, that's terrifying on its own, but this didn't just happen to Heather one time. It happened the next night, and the next, and every night for about a year. He would appear in her car at the south end of Lower Fort Gary site, and would be gone at the north end. She became so scared to drive past the fort at night, she says that she started looking for other ways to get home. Heather told no one about this thinking that people would think she was losing her mind. But one day she was talking to a friend who she did confide in and told her that if she didn't want a ghost to bother her, you can tell them to leave you alone. So she did that one night, and he never appeared to her again. So what an amazing story, and especially that this happened to Heather for so long, almost nightly, and I don't blame her for trying to find another way that would have been really scary. And it's amazing, but I also, I feel really bad for her that she had to suffer in silence. And I think a lot of people feel this way when it comes to the paranormal. So it's really important to make sure that people who share these things with you know that even if you don't understand, that you believe them. So thank you so much to Heather for sharing her personal story. And I have to commend her on her composure, especially that initial night. Even though she was terrified, she was able to ask if he wanted something and to continue driving. I mean, wow. So clearly this is an amazing and active location. And of course, they are open to the public as a historical site. So I'll share all of their information on the blog. But also a great thing about this location is that they do acknowledge the spirits at their site. They have welcomed ghost hunting groups in the past And they have also hosted their own ghost tours. Heather said that Halloween is always a really exciting time of year. So I will keep an eye on their events and share any links 
of things that they might be doing this season. And again, hopefully they'll be able to be open this season. Of course, we're not sure, but if not this year, next. This is a place I think you could have a really good chance for a sighting or a paranormal experience if you do go there. So that's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope that you enjoyed it. What a pair of great locations and so much history packed into these spots. I would love to know what you guys think about the paranormal claims from these locations. And of course, let me know if you have already visited and had your own experiences or maybe not. Um, And also let me know if you do visit in the future. Also a big, big thank you to Dunvegan Historical Site and to Stephanie for the information and for the chat. She was wonderful. So if you do visit and have a chance to meet Stephanie, uh, let her know where you heard about Dunvegan. Thank you so much also to Lower Fort Gary National Historical Site, to Haley for putting me in the right hands, and of course to Heather for providing us with all of those amazing stories. Seriously, I didn't have to do much. And also big appreciation to Heather for sharing her amazing personal story. I've never heard anything like that before, and thank you so much. Make sure to check out the blog for extra information, images, and links to both of these places at realscarypodcast.ca. Also, you can please email me at realscarypodcast at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions about future episodes, comments about the episodes, or if you'd just like to say hi. Also, please be sure to drop me a rating wherever you listen and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at realscarypodcast. Until next time, this is your friendly neighborhood host, Elise.